In this episode, I'm once again joined by Damarato, a lineage teacher in the Thai Buddhist tradition who is known for his unique one-on-one -on -one teaching style conducted over Skype. This interview is recorded in the lead-up to a dialogue I will be hosting between Damarato and Daniel Ingram on the question, is there magic in the Dharma? In this episode, Damarato explores the Mahatana Sankhya Sutta and draws out themes of magical thinking, continuation of consciousness, and dependent origination. Later, Damarato gives his take on the Buddhist doctrines of rebirth and making merit, the Mahasi meditation method, the Tulku system, and the Dalai Lama's claims of reincarnation. We also discuss if the Eightfold Path inevitably leads to individual renunciation and societal collapse, and what it means to leave the fight. So without further ado, Damarato. Maha Mahatanha. Oh yeah. Mahatanha, of course. Yeah, crazy. In fact, the Tanha is the major part of it. It yeah. is the, the Sankhya is actually the ending, but it's the craving, the Tanha, the thirst, the yeah. wanting things. And that where that comes from is um, dwelt upon in an interesting way, and most of the translators translated incorrectly. In fact, one of the points that I wanted to make with having some poly in this is to point out that we can't trust the translations. Not just the one that we're using here, uh, but uh, I use this translation because it's mixed with the poly, giving really easy way. And not only that, but there's a rollover poly dictionary on it. And we can publish that the link to that. So if you want to follow along, uh, we, we can. Certainly. Uh, and so basically what happens with the sutta is, is that they're sitting in uh, Jetta's Grove, uh, Anthropitica's Park. Here they translated as monastery, but clearly the uh, Irani is, is a park. Uh, they also use the word mendicant here. But there is a mendicant named Sati, son of a fisherman. And uh, he has the following harmful misconception. Let's talk about that for a moment because that introduces the thing and sets it up. That, th that these conceptions uh, or thoughts or views are harmful <clears throat> because it leads us astray and puts us in a position of not understanding uh, that things have causes and effects. And so it's introduced to read, uh, right in the front of that, and that's posted many times through this sutta. So as I understand the Buddhist teaching, it is this very same consciousness that roams and transmigrates, not another. Okay, the word transmigrate here uh, sounds a bit magical. It doesn't have to be. Basically, you could look at it in the sense that he's in London and there he is, and then he moves to Greece and there he is too, right? <clears throat> and that uh, um, it doesn't have to be um, annihilationist in the sense that the body dies and then the soul dies or that the body dies and the soul continues. 
but rather here it's actually it doesn't matter where the guy goes or whether he's dead and becomes alive again or whatnot in all or both conditions it's this very same consciousness that roams and transmigrates all over the place and and it's the same consciousness that is the problem here okay uh, and so when other monks heard about that, they came back and questioned him. And uh, uh, they asked him completely, this, this is a harmful misconception. Is this how you got it? And he says, absolutely, uh, reverence. As I understand the Buddhist teaching, it is this very same consciousness that roams and runs around from here to there, not another. Then wishing to dissuade Sati from his views, the mendicants pursued him. They pressed him. They grilled him. Don't say that. Don't misrepresent the Buddha like that. The Buddha did not say this. The Buddha would say that things are dependently originated since consciousness does not arise without a cause. Okay. Guess what? Stopping in the Pali for just a moment, here's the first representation of the word Paticca Samuppada. There it is. Dependently originated. So this is that famous phrase that people begin to get magical when in fact the whole introduction is, is that this is talking about science. This is talking about reasons, that everything has to have a reason or a cause. In fact, when we use the idea of things are reasonable, that means that we can see the cause and the effect relationship. We reason that together or that there is a reason for something or there is a cause for it. That's what this teaching is. And it's sometimes hard for people to grasp. A lot of people don't reason things out. And that's what this is about is to recognize that no consciousness is dependently arisen, that it is not there all the time and it's not there to run from New York to Rome to uh, Sydney back and forth and it be the same dude. Things are changing all the time. And we have to understand that. And the reason it is changing is because of causes and condition. But even though the mendicants pressed him in this way, Sati obstinately stuck to his misconceptions and insisted upon them. And that in fact, I have had talks with students to where this whole idea that they can't rely upon the future and they want to grasp and cling to all of these suttas that mention rebirth and reincarnation and try to cling to it and, and I have seen students cling to this it's almost terrifying for some people to recognize hey man this is it <laughs> you better enjoy what you got because you ain't getting it more. In fact, things are going to get worse. You're going to get old. You're going to get sick and then you're going to die. So you better get used to things and start to liking them now because this is about your last shot at it. And people don't like that. They say, oh, no, I want to do over. I want this to last and last and last. And so they cling to life and want to live. So. Uh, they couldn't dissuade him from this. Um, and so they go and tell the Buddha. Now, in this version that I have, the Pali, uh, like many translations, they do it over and over and over again. So when the monks chant, see, the first time you hear Sati talk about it was when the, the monks just heard about it. And then you hear them talking about it when they ask him about it.
And then they go and they tell the Buddha that this is what he said. And then they summon uh, Sati. And then he goes over it again with the Buddha. Over and over and over and over again, it's in the Pali, but in the Sutta and the English, they uh, leave that out. Uh, and so finally we get down to, so the Buddha said to a certain monk, please monk, in my name, tell the mendicant Sati that the teacher summons him. Yes, sir. The monk replied, he went to Sati and said to him, Reverend sir, the teacher summons you. Yes, Reverend replied to Sati. He, um, he went to the Buddha, bowed and sat down to one side and the Buddha says, is it really true Sati that you have such a harmful misconception? Quote, as I understand the Buddha's teaching, it is this very same consciousness that roams and transmigrates, not another. Absolutely, sir. As I understand the Buddha's teaching, says Sati, it is exactly this very same consciousness that roams and transmigrates, not, not another. And then the Buddha asks Sati, what, what is this consciousness that you're talking about? Doing the Socratic method, you know, Socrates uh, doing, okay, so he's questioning about it. The other monks, they just kept telling him over and over again what the Buddha taught. But now the Buddha is actually questioning him. What's going on here? What is this consciousness that you talk about? And then he gets down to it. Oh, sir, it is he who speaks and feels and experiences the results of good and bad actions in the various realms. Now, again, the problem with various realms is actually in this translation, it uses Tatra Tatra, which basically means just here and there. So it doesn't have to be read magically again. It can just in the regular thing, he's still talking about a kind of a permanent self. That's the same thing over and over again. And then um, he says, the Buddha says, silly man, who on earth have you ever known me to teach this way? Now, actually the Pali word is moga parusa. I like that word. It's just a stupid, ignorant, yeah, <laughs> and that's what he called him. This is what I mean. The Buddha's using the hard method now. He just slapped him. Haven't I said in many ways that consciousness is dependently originated since the consciousness does not arise without a cause? There we go again, Paticca Samuppada, right there in the suttas. And so, still, you're me, you represent me by your wrong grasp and harm yourself and make much bad comma. Actually in the Pali, it's actually worded a little different. Don't want to get too much into it. And it says, but still you're wrong by your wrong grasp. You misrepresent me, you harm yourself and you make bad comma. But the English syntax is a little bit backwards in it. Uh, this will be for your lasting harm and suffering. Ah. Now, this is an important point that a lot of people don't understand. And in fact, this may be the whole point, not only of the sutta, but of why wrong practice is wrong practice is because people believe that I will be here now, I will be in London, and I will be reborn sometime in the future, and it's all me, 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 me rather than recognizing that this me is only up when it's up and down when it's down. 
And when it's down, it's not there. That things flicker. They come in and out. Okay. Um, or like uh, a light that goes from dim to bright, back to dim again, or off and on, on a sliding scale. And that our, our selfishness is strongest when in fact we are the most selfish. Like when somebody's asking us for a loan. <laughs> Me, I don't have any money. Me, I need my money. I can't give it to you. Okay, so you can see there's the selfish in it. To where friendship would say, sure, I'll give it. here I have enough. I'll give it to you because I'm not selfish for this money. So uh, this is basically what we're talking about here is this consciousness that this Shanti is talking about is actually tied with the self. That it's he or it's the me that goes around experiencing the good and bad karma no matter where I am. So um, this will be for one suffering for a long time. Why is it a suffering for a long time? Is because basically if we don't understand cause and effect, then perhaps it will be difficult for us to understand the second noble truth, which is in fact the cause of dukkha. But when we can see that things have to have a cause, then we can understand that we can, make, let us say, change the fuel for that fire and get a different kind of fire going because we change the fuel, which is a little bit further on in the suttas. But this is the point that is really interesting for us to make a, a pinprick on. And that is, is that holding these wrong pernicious views actually are harmful because it keeps us from practicing the path correctly. We go off in the wrong direction. We hope for things that we can't have, and when we don't get them, we feel bad. Okay. Um, then, the, then the Buddha said to the mendicants, what do you think, because Has this uh, mendicant sati even a spark of wisdom in the teaching? How could he, sir? No, sir. Then what is it, sir? Sati said, embarrassed, shoulders drooping, downcast, depressed. He's just, I mean, he was defeated. Knowing this, that, that he was downcast and defeated, he said again, uh, Moga Parusa, you silly dude, don't you see that these uh, misconceptions are harmful? And then the Buddha says, I'll question the mendicants about this. Then the Buddha said to them, and so here we will start kind of the second part of the first half. And that is the part about the teachings of Paticca Samuppada. But the ending of this part is the ending with these wrong views are dangerous, they're harmful. And it prevents us from making progress. This is, in fact, why this is the first fetter the first federal personality view. Okay, so now we begin to go into it a little deeper. Mendicants, do you understand my teachings as Sati does when he misrepresents me in this wrong view, he harms himself and makes such bad comma? No, sir. For in many ways, the Buddha has told us that consciousness is dependently arisen since consciousness does not arise without a cause. The Buddha says, good, 
mendicants. It's good that you understand my teachings this way, for in many ways I have told you that consciousness is dependently arisen since consciousness does not rise without a cause, but still the sati misrepresents me his wrong, by his wrong views, harms himself, and makes much bad karma. This will be for his lasting harm and suffering. Consciousness is reckoned according to specific conditions depending upon which it arises. Consciousness that arises depending upon the eye inside is recognized as eye consciousness. Consciousness that arises upon the ear is sound consciousness and the nose and the smell and the tongue and the taste and the body and the touch and the mind and the thoughts are the same. They are all uh, consciousness that arises upon these conditions. Then he says, it's like fire, which is reckoned according to the specific conditions upon which it burns. That's interesting. A fire is known by what it burns. For instance, a log fire, we know the fire by the name of it. We know a house fire by, its, by what its fuel is. A fire is known by its fuel a grass fire, even a refuge fire. Um, and so in many ways, consciousness is reckoned according to specific conditions depending upon which it arises. So now he goes back through it and adds a little bit to it in the sense that it is I and forms that are dependent. There's like an I, so you have I consciousness because that's the cause of it, through the rest of it. And then mendicants, what do you see? With this, there is that. Do you see that this originates with that as a fuel? Yes, sir. Do you see that when this fuel ceases, that that has, is liable to also cease? In other words, when the fire runs out of fuel, the fire is likely to go out unless it can find more fuel. This is basic science, even to the point of CERN and all of science is built upon the fact that we have to have energy and energy being transformed and transmutated, we can use it for our benefit. But all of those fires that we can start have to have a fuel, a source for that energy. This is back to the cause effect relationship. Um, does doubt arise when you're uncertain whether or not this has come to be? Yes, sir. In other words, this is a source of doubt. Doubt arises when you're uncertain whether or not this has originated with that as a fuel. In other words, if you don't know the cause-effect relationship between things, we become confused. And quite often I see that people get them backwards. They think that because they saw this and then they see that, that it was, this was the cause of that, where in fact, they've got it backwards. They saw the result first and then later they saw the cause to get the cause effect relationship backwards. That's very common. An example of that is the students sit in meditation for months and months and months on and on and on and on, hoping to get some result, thinking that the common machine is going to come in, whack them with the, um, Shakti pot, and then now then they're going to be happy. Okay, that's that kind of magical thinking. 
where is that joy going to come from if they don't manufacture it? When they recognize that joy is a fire that has to have a fuel, then you can put that fuel on that fire and get that fire going. It's not going to happen magically. Okay. May I interject, Damaretta? Yes. So there are two levels here that you're dealing with yeah, simultaneously exactly. it seems sorry about that <laughs> no, that's good it's very it's very it's great on the one hand there's the buddha's refutation of what sati is saying and sati is it seems proposing some sort of consciousness that's independent of the cause effect relationship and so it can transmigrate through um or move through all sorts of different situations in a continuous way not dependent on any causes and the exactly. buddha's trying to uh refute that and uh, and say actually no even consciousness is caused uh, is is subject to the cause and effect matrix relationships so your definition of magical thinking it seems is effects without causes somehow uh, something's just going to happen somehow magically without any causes so if you sit in meditation expecting something to happen and you don't do the thing that would cause that effect to happen then you're engaging in magical thinking wishing the magical karma machine somehow you yeah. said well, so, and that's why it's so that's why it's so dangerous or this sort of way of thinking. But also there's the sense in which the suttas read magically. That's the other layer that you're talking about. There's the layer of the Buddha's conversation with Sati, and then there's the layer in which magical thinking uh, is read into the sutta. Would that be fair to say? Yes, not only is read into it, but is read into it by the reader. And then if it's translated, it's, it's read back out through the translation, which is then read in by the next reader is even more magical. And so things devolve into magical thinking. And the Buddha cautions us, no, let's make sure that any of these things that we have have to have foundations of reality to it. We have to have the understanding that things got a fire that if you're going to develop something, you've got to give it a fuel. And so can you uh, explain how it's possible to read magical thinking into a sutta that's specifically set up to refute magical thinking? Well, this sutta right here is a really clear example of it. That's part of the reason why we, you know, we chose this one. Um, let us say this, that the... Pali language uses what we would think would be magical language to describe ordinary things. So that Brahma and Devas are talking about aristocracy or high-class people. They're not talking about fairies and angels and things that float up into space and have no fuel. Okay, so everything has to have a substance to it. And if you can't see the substance to it, then that may mean that this is just an idea or an ideal. Because ideas and ideals are the basically the only thing that don't have um, any substance to them. But in fact, in a way, they do have a fire. And that is the magical thinking behind it or the misunderstanding, the ignorance, in fact. So you could equate um, magical thinking with ignorance. That's another definition of it. But uh, there's, there's basically two kinds of ignorance. The ignorance that you don't know. And then the ignorance that you know, but you're incorrect or wrong about. In other words, beliefs. 
An example that I often use is the student wakes up in the middle of the night and it's dark and he decides that he can make it to the bathroom without turning the lights on. And on the way, he stubs his toe. Now, where, what, was, what was going on? In this case, the Pali word ajiva, what does it mean? Does it mean knowing not or not knowing? Or what I mean by that is, is that if he, if he does not know the way to the bathroom without stubbing his toe, and he knows that he does not know the way, then that's wise ignorance. But no, he, he thought he knew the way to the bathroom and he was wrong and he had to pay the dukkha. He had to pay the price for it. Okay, so this is what this, the, so the outcome of magical thinking, I can make it to the bathroom without stubbing my toe. I don't have to turn the light on is the stub toe. So there's a very clear example right there of it of uh, magical thinking. Now, another kind of magical thinking that you were talking about is, is that when we think that this will be the cause of that. In other words, my grand is in the hospital and if I pray to God really earnestly to make her better, he will and she died. Or if she lived, he'll still think that the, the prayer did it. Right, because he's mixing, he's linking this cause and effect that has really no reality to it. So wishful thinking, bringing about results is a fire or is a fuel that really does not fuel a fire. And the fire must be fueled by something else instead. So that's the kind of magical thinking is not understanding what is the fuel for a fire not understanding which is the fuel and which is the fire and not understanding that fire does have to have a fuel. All of those are magical thinking. Is it possible to correctly ascribe causes to their effects? It seems to be a very complicated web of causation that leads to certain things. And also, what about, uh, are there such things as useful ignorances? For instance, the placebo effect. You give somebody a pill that they think is the medicine, and it seems, I mean, it's a bit mysterious. You don't quite understand why this works, but it seems that people can because get better because of their placebo. They're wrong about the cause and effect in a certain sense, but that wrong kind of averages out a good outcome somehow. <laughs> well, all right. If we see that as, a, as an advantage, in fact, they, they, there's a lot of experiments that are happened with the placebo. It's very interesting that you note, uh, note that. In some cases, they can drive it up as high as in the high 40s of effective rate. How would they do that? Well, this placebo requires you to lay in the hospital bed and have IVs. Only the IVs are nothing but in fact, they're probably nothing much at all. Maybe even not even good enough saline, you know, but they're giving you nothing at all, but they're telling you it's medicine. And with the, all of that kind of, the nurses come in and take your blood pressure and they've got machines and monitoring and everything like that. They can really convince you that this is all a lie uh, and that you, you believe it 100%. This is politics, okay? And that's the placebo effect. That's what gets voters to vote. You'd be surprised at how hard this, or how powerful this placebo effect really is, is getting people to believe things and therefore it becomes reality. In that regard, the mind does precede everything. 
So if the mind precedes everything like that, that means that you think something before you actually can do it. If you can't think your way out of it, then you can't work your way out of it. But oftentimes when we work our way out of it, it's all thinking our way working anyway. So if we understand the power of thought, then doesn't it seem like a really good idea to start controlling these thoughts and making them wholesome rather than having all of this unwholesome crap running around between the ears? <laughs> In other words, we need to change the fuel that we are burning and start doing something more wholesome, which is actually what's way down in the bottom of the sutta where the Buddha points that out in uh, very clear detail. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the answer to it is, is that, and you made also the statement that things are very complicated, right? Hundreds of billions and trillions of causes are happening to affect hundreds of billions of trillions of things hundreds of trillions of times a second. Yeah, there's a whole lot going on. And wow, it's unreal to really start to open up and appreciate all that's going on. But no, we get in a tight little loop inside the mind and we forget to really open our senses, which is really what a lot of the sutta about Paticca Samuppada is about, is to be there for the senses and to open the senses rather than to be in perception or processing or figuring things out or trying to understand or whatever like that, because while we're doing all of that, we're not paying attention to what's going on. So the main cause and effect relationship that we ought to focus on as individuals is the Paticca Samuppada, the cause and effects of our own states and states of mind and so on. Is that what you're saying? If ignorance of cause and conditions is one kind of ignorance which can lead to suffering, is it enough just to understand that there are cause and effects, or is there a sense that we need to be able to perceive to some depth of cause and effect before we're relieved in some way? Actually, it would be something to guard upon in the sense that unwholesome thoughts would be thoughts of confusion that you don't know what the cause effect is rather than to understand that everything does have a cause. And if you look, you'll see the cause and effect relationship. So it's a matter of investigation, really, to investigate and to look to see what's going on with that. Um, let us say the main guiding light is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. In other words, to see the Dukkha in order to get out of its way. But in relationship to that, to see the cause of dukkha is what we're really looking for, is when we can see the cause of suffering, then we can see that before the suffering itself comes, perhaps. Okay, and so this is why the idea then within Paticca Samapada is we back up the faster that we can catch things uh, in the mind, the fewer the mind moments it takes to back up into this then the more, the more likely you can put a stop to it. But now Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has an important point in that relationship of Paticca Samuppada that in fact there are several key points. The key point that most people take is the key point of once things get bad enough, the person wakes up, this has really gone too far, okay? 
And when we think of that, you can see the image of the man slamming the door to the front of his house as he leaves and storms off. He's had enough of this, okay? If he does not reach that point, he might go into violence. And then he'll have that wake up, wait a minute, I've gone too far. But he may be out in the backyard with his shovel trying to bury, bury a corpse before he figures out I've gone too far. Okay, how far do we go before we've gone too far? Right? So most people find that they've gone too far when they recognize the dukkha. The question is, how quickly can you recognize the dukkha? Now, the next point, though, uh, for the meditator, for the ones who were really sharp and on, on the job here, we're going to start putting our, our perspective point at, at feelings and the point of contact. Why? Because when something contacts us, now's the time to recognize our, what our feelings are so that we have a chance to make a, uh, control over them before the feelings, if they're ignorant, go to grasping and clinging or wanting and desiring or um, harming ourselves or someone else or into confusion. And therefore that grasping or tanha, which is what the sutta is all about, the Mahatanha Sutta is when feelings go into tanha. Okay, and so the end of the craving then is uh, to start managing the feelings. And the way that we manage the feelings is by being there for them to start watching what's going on. And so we practice Anapanasati to begin to get sharp on what the mind is doing. Should we go to that bit then where this chain reaction from contact to feeling and so on is laid out? I should say that uh, Damarato has two lessons, uh, lecture lessons, video lessons on this sutta, and he goes line by line and deals with all the Pali and shows some of these. You know, another point you've made is that sometimes things that appear to be uh, referring to magical things like magical beings or so on, you're saying that sometimes these are literary devices, essentially, or sort of metaphors. Uh, something is reborn, not in the sense of reincarnation, but in the sense in the sense of just something, uh, you know, happening again or there something. There you go again. Yeah, exactly. So you go through that and with the Pali and for the, so, you know, th this is a somewhat of a, a skim, you know, in a sense, some key points and, and, uh, and some, and some questions about it. But for, if you want more detail, that's the way to go. And that's linked in the show notes. We will link those in the show notes. And also if there's interest and write in the comments, if there is, then uh, Damarato has also said that perhaps we'll do a full, dissection of this sutta maybe in a future episode so that would be uh long but very interesting but anyway should we go to that part this this chain cause and effect now you're talking about okay what are we going to do about it uh, and it's really cool how it's linked together this idea of uh -huh. contact to feeling and so on it goes okay uh i think we're about to get into that we're at basically uh point number 10 and 11 but just just about to finish 10 and we're talking about the doubt that arises about whether we understand a fuel that burns with a fire or not. Right. And then down to 12.3, are you free of doubt as to whether this originated with that as a fuel? Have you truly seen clearly with right understanding that this has come to be? And then a few lines, have you truly seen clearly with right understanding that this has originated with that as a fuel? So the point that I want to make here is the Buddha really grounds that in. 
it really needs to be ground in that you understand that a fire has to have a fuel. And when we understand that, then we can see that cause effect relationship and then we, uh, we be free of doubt. So long as we have magical thinking that things happen and we don't understand what the, uh, the cause was or magical thinking about it, then there will always be doubt and confusion. Only with certainty, because we really see what's going on, is the doubt clearly eradicated. Okay, so have you truly seen with right understanding? Pure, bright as this view is, mendicants, if you cherish it, fancy it, treasure it, and treat it as your own, would you be understanding how the Dhamma is similar to a raft for crossing over, not for holding on to? But in fact, the whole idea then of rebirth and reincarnation and all of that is merely something to hold on to because what you can do with that. But the teaching of the Buddha, the teaching of fire has to have a fuel, that's like a raft. It's like you could go someplace with this. Uh, pure and bright as this view is, mendicants, if you don't cherish it, fancy it, treasure it, and treat it as your own, would you be understanding how the Dhamma is similar to a raft of crossing over or for holding on? Yes. Okay, mendicants, there are these four fuels. Now, this is where the second start point starts. As uh, mendicants, there are these four fuels that maintain sentient beings that have been born and help those that are about to be born. Okay, now, uh, basically, these four things are solid food, finer course, contact as a second, mental intention, and consciousness as a fourth. Now, this is actually leading into uh, our sense consciousness with food, and uh, we want to have contact with other people. We have mental intentions for getting things, and we see ourselves as consciousness. So basically, this is a prelude into the four modes of clinging. Okay, so what is the source, origin, birthplace, or the root of these four things is craving. Now look at that. In this sutta, he says just craving. But in the Pali, that's where it gets really complicated. Where he's actually talking about not just tanha, but tanha nadana, tanha samudaya, tanha chatika, and tanha pabuva. Now uh, this pa actually is pa bhava, pa bhava. These are the four modes of clinging. But when I looked at these things in the Pali Dictionary, you get really obscure, abstract kind of things that they don't really know what they mean. But we do know that if these are the four modes of clinging, then we, have to, we can figure it out in the sense that the one that's to do with consciousness is the clinging to personality view, clinging to self. And that we pretty well know because that the Jataka is actually origins from a clan, that would be our rights, rules, rituals. And so the other two, I'm not really sure about it, and the attended and uh, the Samudaya um, would be then attachment to sensual desire, I think, is the Samudaya, which would give rise to 
um, materialism. And then the fourth would be attachment to uh, views, uh, views like political parties that we would join or identifications with other peoples or NGOs or nations or uh, churches or religions or anything like that. We, we identify with them and, and hold similar views with them. So these are the four modes of clinging and this is what they begin to get at here. Okay. So what is the source of the craving? And now again, you can see the source is the word Kim. And so we have, what is the Tanha? What is the beginning of that? The Kim Nidadiya, the Kim Samudaya, the Kim Jitaka, and the Kim Pavaba. So this is used throughout this sutta. And yet the Pali dictionaries and none of the translators quite know what any of these words mean. And so they gloss right through them. But here we go, we can actually look at it in this sense of that from craving, uh, which is tanha, we go down to vedana, which is feeling. And from feeling, we have pasa, which is contact. And contact from that is the sixth sense field. And by the way, uh, we're on 16 now, 16, one, two, three, four, up through that, okay? So the craving, and so basically what we're doing now is we're going backwards from craving, uh, which is the tanha. Now, uh, in fact, the, guy, the translator here is not really uh, sure about it, but if you look in the Pali, you'll see also the word upadana. The word upadana is actually the clinging part. So, so craving is actually going to and clinging is I've got it. And then the rise of the self, the I've got it. So the ownership requires not only the owned, but the owner. And so we create the owner at that point of contact. If we can recognize that as the point of contact is when I'm created, when I become uh, in existence, that's the point to stop. But we can do it at the point of feeling, which is I want because I like it. I like it, then I want it, and then I grasp hold of it, and that creates the I, which means now there's something that's going to get disappointed. Because if I grab a hold of something, I'm going to lose it. The old age, sickness, and death part comes in, okay? So wanting something that we don't have is a form of suffering, but getting what we want and then losing it is often even worse. So we're talking about then uh, uh, these four modes of clinging then give rise to four modes of feeling, which give rise to four modes of contact, which give rise to four kinds of sixth sense field. Now here we're using the word salayatana. And it's very interesting that the word salayatana is chosen in this group because there is the Pali word atana, and the word atana means the sense base. So the salayatana is actually the internal sense base or that which we make of something. But when we look at something, we don't really know what it is. The eyes, all they have is sight, uh, is color, shapes, and uh, forms and movement. 
That's all the eye can detect. Everything else has to be processed and then again processed into understanding. First, it has to make an image out of it, and then the image has to be made into an understandable image. And so, in fact, there's two kinds of consciousness. There's this, what we see and then what we make of it. Okay, so the first side is just seeing someone come down the road, and let's say whatever uh, they are, they're dressed in some undescript uniform, but when we see them, we only see that. But now we take that image, we make an image out of what is seen, and then we process it through our uniform base to come up with, oh, that's a nun's habit, or that's a uh, SS stormtrooper suit or that's a general or it's a halloween costume or whatever like that it is because of a a base and that base of knowledge is the sankara all right and the perception or nama rupa is the evaluation of what we saw into the salayatana what we perceive or what we think that we know what there is this is where we make a lot of mistakes because we don't often identify things very well because our memories are not all of that great. And so sometimes we make stuff up. Okay, so this is what we mean by the sixth sense field base. And what is the cause of that is perception or this name and form. And the name and form is... Uh, let us say that uses what we see and also the sankara. Now, in this sutta, the, the translator used the word choices. I can't think of a worse word he could have used as a translation for sankara. Why? Because sankara is actually pointing out that we can change our choices, but right now, most of our choices are done automatically or choicelessly, that we do not take choices. That's why things wind up the way that they keep winding up, is <laughs> because we're not making the choices that we need to. We need to make some interruptions in some of this stuff, okay? And so this is another way of looking at it. If we keep having wholesome thoughts over and over and over again, now we have memories of wholesome thoughts and so the new wholesome thoughts we're having will now uh, be used in our perceptional system for the next Sankara or, or for the next Salyatana, which now will change the whole way that all of this operates. So it actually can be changed at every point along the way, depending upon our skill level. And that skill level has to do with the speed of how things, how fast things happen. So, from choices down to the bottom is ignorance, a jiva. Now, the way that we can see that easily is, is that children are taught many things as children without any understanding. They're just said, you do what I tell you to do. You, you do it this way. And our, our student, our children then um, will pick up stuff ignorantly. Ma I saw mommy do it. That must be the way to, I do it. Basically, what we're talking about is monkey see, monkey do. And that's how we do it. We, we see what other people are doing and we go along and do the same thing. But it's not just monkey see, monkey do. It's monkey feel, monkey do. Or monkey uh, uh, say, this monkey learns to say that same thing. 
one one sure way of a of a mother or a parent to know that when they raise their child that that child is going to yell at them is by the the fact that the parent will yell at the child and the child will then be taught yelling okay so that's where we that's where we learn yelling is because we've been yelled at isn't that interesting that sankara if we would stop yelling at ourselves and start being easy on ourselves, then we would not pull up all of that yelling so often. So this is a way of, of, of practicing. So this is actually very practical. And yet a lot of people think that it's theoretical and that it's broken down in several lifetimes. The fact is actually it is broken down into several lifetimes. Let me show you where they are. One of the lifetimes is between the past and the present. The past and the present, or the, the past life and the present life, is between ignorance and sankara on one side, and then uh, consciousness in this present moment is the new now. And so that's the next lifetime. Once we get up to feelings, and those feelings then begin to become craving and the craving becomes grasping and clinging and the clinging becomes a cling or that's the next life. The self is born. Selfishness arises in the mind as a cause, as a condition for the clinging. If the clinging doesn't happen, then the, then the causality for the becoming a self and the self doesn't happen and the individual winds up uh, in an ordinary place as opposed to being in a hell state or in a animal state or in a uh, hungry ghost who wants something and wants something and can't get it and wants more and wants more and never getting enough, sort of like a gambler. So these are the four modes of clinging wind us up in the four hell states. Now, going back to the sutta, the Buddha goes over this over and over and over again. In fact, the detailed Pali, now I recognize that it goes through it uh, four complete times, up, forward, and down, and then up again in a whole new frame of reference and then down. It's all in the Pali, but the English translators leave all of that out. Because it's repetitive, they leave it out. Right, but the repetitive is what makes it stick. That's how you learn a poem, is you have to repeat it over and over and over again until it sticks. That's how you learn any piece of music, okay? And guess what? That's how bad feelings operate. We keep repeating them over and over and over and over again, and they stick. That's what Sankara is, is all of that stuff that's stuck together. But the good news is with that is that if we now do something over and over and over again repetitively and it's wholesome, now the wholesome will start to stick. So that means that we have to change our ways. We can't meditate like uh, um, looking at dukkha and noting dukkha and see more dukkha. No, we've got to change it. We've got to recognize dukkha and get out of it and come immediately into a feeling that you would want to have rather than a feeling that you don't want to have. 
This is all about Anapanasati, which is actually different, different sutta. But uh, the whole point of Anapanasati is to be able to understand how the mind works in this way with Paticca Samuppada that this sutta is really about. And so up and down and back and forth, repeated over and over again, you understand that this causes that and that that causes this. So that you get the whole show with the Jiva and Sankara and Svenya and Namarupa and uh, uh, Salayatana and Pasa and <laughs> Vedana and uh, Tanha and Upadana and Baba and Ajati and Dukkha. Every one of them is a little sequence of events and it happens within just a few mind moments. In fact, I've been looking at that in the sense of reaction time and, and um, have found some stuff on the internet. And then I recognize that, yeah, people when they're really paying attention can get uh, the reaction time of seeing the thing on the screen turn on this website from red to green, recognize it as turned green and then click the mouse. Takes about 200 milliseconds, okay? What we in Buddhism think of that is two thought moments. One is the seeing the red, and then the other is the reacting to it. Okay, so this is about how long that it takes for Paticca Samuppada to go through its sequence. It's about 200 milliseconds, maybe 300 milliseconds. There are some situations to where it can take longer, but we can get into bad feelings that fast. An example of that is you're tooling down the road, you're driving your car, and everything is hunky dory, and you hear a siren and you see a red light, and instantly, you know, like 300 milliseconds later, we're in a panic. <laughs> Some of the applications you're drawing out are if contact and then liking and then wanting and then having actually create the sense of the self, mm -hmm. then observing that process, presumably one could notice the creation of the self in that process. And perhaps that would be something towards that first fetter of personality. Precisely so. This is the value of that teaching is to get through that fetter of self. And the foundation of that, which is so common, is the five aggregates. Because if you know the five aggregates, you see, we've been talking about the five aggregates this whole time, right? What are the five aggregates? The body and the feelings and the um well where are your source of senses if not in the body and the feelings and consciousness and uh uh sanya perception which is the same thing as the nama rupa and the salayatan excuse me the um uh sankara all of our past but there's no self there in any of them. For instance, if you were your body, then you can in fact make your yourself taller or shorter. You could change your gender. You could shave your mustache just by thinking about it. You could do anything you wanted to if it were your body. The fact is, is that it's not your body. And yet people identify with the body. And so they think if this body is beautiful, I'm in beautiful. Let me go down to Maybelline and buy some makeup or uh, beautify the thing. Let me go to the doctor and have some ectoplasm shoved into this tit or that something or another. <laughs> and I will be more beautiful. People do identify with the body. Or in fact, we're not the body. 
not at all. But we're also not the feelings. We're not the feelings. And yet most people feel completely controlled by their feelings. They've got to go with their gut feeling. And in fact, they never do take over it. Nearly it never is their feeling. If anything, they are owned by their feeling. Why? Because of the cause effect. This feeling caused them to go do that. Therefore, they are not the owner of that feeling. It's not my feeling. It's the other way around. Cause and effect. Very simple, huh? <laughs> and so we also recognize it in, down at the level of perception and even my past. That's not me. I'm a completely different person now. Everything is new. If I went around thinking about the stuff that I did 20 years ago, I'd be miserable and unhappy and feeling guilty and trying to go patch things up. But now I can feel really good about it. everything's okay. So it's a matter of changing the mind and changing the attitude. And we do it when we recognize really how this, how the mind actually works. And there's some really key places in there. There's, there's quite a, quite important every one of them has its own value and so you're also it seems uh, an application is not just that the close paying attention of how this sequence occurs can lead to insight about the nature of the sense of self but also you're saying that this process can be leveraged by introducing positive uh, thoughts wholesome thoughts as you've put it into the system which will valence the system in a more positive direction and yes, then you yes. said that it's not simply enough to just look at the dukkha and so on. That sounds a little bit like you're taking a swipe at certain kind of deconstructive meditation techniques that focus on raw deconstruction of sensory experience without any introduction of positive material or positive valencing. Is that fair to say? Like the Mahasi method, for example. Guilty, Your Honor. <laughs> Got me. Nail me to the wall. Okay, well, then I uh, understood you right then. <laughs> yes, you did. Okay. Um, and um, not to go off into too much detail. In fact, there's something that, you, uh, that we can cover with Dan uh, in a bit more detail. Um, but I would say that the distinction between what they do in Thailand uh, and the surrounds of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Burma is that uh, in Thailand, they go more for the Anapanasati Sutta to where in uh, Burma, they go more for the Satipatthana Sutta. But even in the Satipatthana Sutta, it talks about the hindrances just like it does in, later in this Sutta number 38 that we got started doing. Um, is, is that these hindrances must be removed, that we have to remove them. And once they are removed, then we can continue on with the practice. But the very first thing, and this is also pointed out in the Satipatthana Sutta, but it's easy to miss. It's almost like just one liner of that whole long sutta. And uh, it's just one point about that these things have to be eradicated or dispensed with. But it is also interesting that in that Satipatthana Sutta, that the part of it that we're talking about is the Dhamma Nupassana, 
is that everything except the hindrances is real dhamma in the sense that the next items on the list are the five aggregates, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the four noble truths, and the eightfold noble path. And those are wholesome things to think about, as opposed to the hindrances or the unwholesome things to think about, which need to be removed. And then there's the whole, in fact, the, uh, uh, um, the whole proof of it all is Sutta number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya, and the name of it is Two Kinds of Thoughts, where it's talking about unwholesome thoughts and wholesome thoughts, and recommends that we continue to have wholesome thoughts and to remove the unwholesome thoughts that can then be seen as the hindrances. So that's the main difference, is, is that uh, what are we going to do then instead of inspecting the thoughts that we have and deconstructing all of that stuff that's there is merely to see it just enough to recognize that's dukkha out of here go out out we're going to put something wholesome in the mind and then let's deconstruct that <laughs> okay so may i ask some related questions then no okay yeah we sure. good yeah of course, there's much more that could be said about this particular passage that you've selected, this sutta. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to ask a little bit about reincarnation. But I'll ask one question before that. Basic question. Who is the one doing the realizing of this process? If one is paying attention to this process of contact, liking, uh, wanting, having, etc. And one of the outcomes of that uh, or consequences of that investigation could be insight into anatta. I suppose, insight into the, the, the constructed nature of the self in a certain sense, or it's interdependent arising as opposed to it being independent of everything. What's left? What's in the gaps? What's initiating that investigative momentum? If I could answer that, would it make you happy? Another question. If you were happy without knowing that, would that be okay? Once you're happy, maybe you don't need the answer to those kind of questions, okay? But in fact, that's covered right here in this sutta at the bottom of it that we didn't get into. In the sense of, because the basic question you're asking is, who am I and what am I and where am I going and, and all of that kind of stuff. And the other part of the questions would be, uh, from reincarnation perspective was what was I in the past and who was I in the past and where did I go and from where did I go to there and then uh, the, uh, the idea of the future with reincarnation is what will I be in the future? How will I get from here to there? And those kinds of questions. Now, in, uh, that kind of question is talked about in several suttas. One of them, uh, the Saba Asava Sutta, talks about those kinds of thoughts as unwholesome thoughts um, are thoughts that are not worthy of attention, is how it's expressed in the sutta in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Thoughts that are not worthy of attention are the kind of thoughts that lead us into confusion into despair, into despondence, into doubt, into fear, into whataboutism, and all of that. And so that for that reason, they're unwholesome. And then on the other side of the coin would be, well, what are wholesome thoughts? 
and wholesome thoughts then or the thoughts that are worthy of our uh, awareness would be thoughts that such that when we have them, that we come out of our depression, we come out of our bad feelings, we come out of our uh, misery and our worry and our uh, doubts. And then the next part of it is uh, by this is verse of only verse 11 in this sutta, uh, Saba Asaba, number two in the Majjhima Nikaya. It says, Well, what is worthy of our attention? And the answer is, This is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. This is the end of dukkha. And this is the method to get rid of it. Okay, the Four Noble Truths is in fact worthy of our inspection, worthy of our attention, worthy of our awareness, how to get out of suffering. What is suffering? What's the cause of it? What's its fuel? How do we get out of it and come to a state in the Third Noble Truth so that we can be in that Third Noble Truth free of suffering? Oh, Sabai, Sabai, everything is so nice. Not a worry in the world. Everything is so good. And the way that we get there is through the Eightfold Noble Path, most specifically to remember to put ourselves in that state and to take the right effort to put ourselves into that state and to know what that state is in the sense that we know what it's not because we know Dukkha and what it's not. And eventually then we develop the um, right attitude that, hey, I can do this. Hey, I can clean my mind out anytime I want to and come back to the here now and be here with the rest of everything instead of all lost in my own dreary madness. So the view is that if that question or that uh, line of thinking isn't, isn't going in that direction, then it's not worth thinking about. It's not worth entertaining. So quite pragmatic filter. Yes. The teachings of the Buddha are very pragmatic. I think that there's a whole group of pragmatic Buddhists that don't even know how pragmatic it can get. <laughs> and that's why you asked me, would it make me happy if I knew the answer? Um, exactly so. Because, I went right to the right to the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let me ask you some more uh, uh, questions uh, of a similar vein. Um, so from a certain point of view, there is an apparent continuation for instance, um, I'm, I reach out to get my coffee mug and there's some sort of uh, apparent continuation there. The hand and the arm are still oh, doing their thing. Of cause effects and cause effects and cause effects. And it was a right. part of your mind that was actually tracking all that stuff going on. You understood right. what was happening. Right. And so in that case, what's the problem with reincarnation? Could it be reincarnation is a little bit like getting the coffee cup in the sense that it it happens on, on that level. The problem is that it's not you who's reincarnating, but there is some sort of reincarnation occurring or something like this. In other words, everything is a flow. Be reincarnated into a worm. I used to be a dog. Uh -huh. So this is what I'm trying to uh, clarify it, in that question is, it seems that whether one believes in reincarnation or not, it seems an irrelevant point. If you allow it to be irrelevant, it is. it can become an irrelevant point. But when it's not irrelevant, when it becomes relevant, then it will interfere in one's practice and it, it is subject to dukkha. 
because one will start to act with an assumption that of the future and that's the problem in your view with reincarnation is not the doctrine of reincarnation per se it's the same problem with me assuming something about tomorrow or the next moment mm-hmm. it's the same error by extension the next life or next week the point that's is what i was pointing out right during the sutta it doesn't matter whether you read it as as a reincarnation or whether it's just the next hour or the next week it's the same thing things change and that we can't assume that they case they stuck you're right. Mm. That's it. Congratulations. You got it. <laughs> so you're not refuting reincarnation per se, uh, but of course it is taken in some presentations of Buddhism to be crucial, actually, because what we're doing now is going to pay off later in our next lives or something right. like this. We're... Which makes you um, not paid off now. which means now you're still lacking something and you've got to wait a long time being irrelevant, unwhole, uh, lacking something, not good enough. Ignoble, wanting, a victim. I mean, how deep can we go? <laughs> deep. I mean, we can go right down to a dark night of the soul if you want to go in that direction. Okay. How deep can you go into depression? How bad can you feel? How deep is your despair? How bad can you make it for yourself? That's what this is all about. Or the other one is to climb out of that hole and be bright and sunny. Your choice. You were taught to be miserable by miserable people. And that's our habit. That's our sankara. But you can lighten up. You can be here now. You can start changing all of those old habits, one after another after another. But you also have to know what you want to change it to and getting permission to feel the way that you want to feel and then begin to feel that way instead of the way that we're in the habit of feeling. And what I mean habit of feeling, that's that ignorance from feeling goes into tanha and from tanha into upadana. That we can stop it at the point of feeling and decide you're going to feel whatever way you want to feel. So we're really back to the core point of magical thinking. Or the other way of saying it, pragmatic thinking is the flip side of that. Actually, mm-hmm. there is something that can be done right now uh, about what's happening right now. We don't have to offset into the future with merit and so on. So this is something I wanted to ask you a bit about because you know, their merit, the accumulation of merit is, I think, one of the iconic Buddhist uh, doctrines into the sense of the way Buddhism as a religion is presented, the accumulation of merit, uh, burning of um, butter lamps or um, doing all sorts of uh, activities that are said to... The number one activity is Saibat hmm. or in... Uh, Laos, they call it Takbat. But that's taking last night's leftovers up and taking about at seven in the morning and putting it into the month bowl. That's the primary thing. It happens and it, they wouldn't have a Sangha if that didn't happen. And they call it Make Merit. That's in Tambun. Tambun is Saibat. 
So is making merit magical thinking? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Um, it is not magical thinking if the person who puts the, uh, the item in the bowl is getting the benefit of the generosity of doing it right then and there. An example of that is mom gets it when, uh, because this is very common that when a little boy is either for the long term, uh, is a monk or, or, or whatever, uh, that they, they, the, the high monks will organize it so that the boys always go to the neighborhood of their family for breakfast. So now mom's putting food in her son's bowl as well as giving, uh, a making merit by feeding a monk. She gets double, double benefit. But the point is, is that she gets great joy by feeding her son. And so she also gets great joy by feeding all the monks in that line. Many of them um, are also kids from that neighborhood. Okay, so that's the benefit right here and now. If you get benefit right here and now, then you've got what, I mean, that that's it gratitude and and uh, gratefulness and uh if you give a gift that is well received both people benefit right then and there that's joy that's that method that's actually karuna uh, I, excuse me mudita that's really doing it when when you choose a gift that your friend really needs and really wants and when you give it to him he's overflowed with joy he really is gr grat uh grateful that you gave it to him that's the value of a gift and that should be the value that we get from doing tom boone which means to uh make something good to tom boone make merit okay that's that's merit right there is to make it but it has been polluted into well if you can't feel good now maybe it'll store up a treasure in heaven and you'll feel better later for the good you did now but on a bigger scale, let us say one of the more wealthy men in town uh, actually puts up a new building in uh, the temple grounds with whitewash and all of the goodies on it that you expect from the, the temple. And as he uh, struts around watching the builders build it and everybody knows that he built it and he gets a pat on the back for all of that, he's getting his benefit for building that building, even though the original idea was if, if I build the building now, I'll have a better future someday. He's got a better future right now. He's a big guy in town. And so again, it's all about what's happening right now, not about doing something now for some future benefit. That's ordinary low-class thinking. That's not, uh, that's not Deva Manusanam. That's not the high class way of thinking. High class way of thinking is get it, you know, so <laughs> make hay while the sun shines, I guess is the way of saying it. That is always in this present moment, not way off into the future. But people do that. And in fact, they say, oh, well, meditation is really hard. It's so hard. I've tried. But maybe now if I donate to the temple or build a building, I'll get all the merit I need and feel better next time. And for the next 30 years, the woman pines and complains and has a miserable life. And it doesn't matter how she's reborn. But if she is reborn in that same mental state that she's been creating, I bet she won't feel much better in the next life if she gets one. 
So in that regard, next life is irrelevant, which is a major point to make, that it's irrelevant. Here's the way to look at it. Be prepared for whatever happens, because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And the best way to be prepared for the future is to be prepared for this present moment whenever it is in the future, which means get prepared for right now. If you can handle right now, you can handle any right now. If you can handle any right now, then you can handle some of the tough ones. Like when you're sentenced to jail. <laughs> or when you're locked into your cell and they finally take the handcuffs off of you and here you are locked up, you know? These are the times we need the Dhamma the most is in that present moment when we think times are tough. But I know some nobles who would thank you for the solitude. Thank you very much. Get away from the maddening crowd. I appreciate you locking me up here. <laughs> and I don't even have to walk around barefoot to get it. <laughs> so you're saying that possible negative outcomes of the future, like going to jail or something like that, we can practice. If we, if we were to worry about that, we could deal with what we can deal with right now. And that builds up the skills and the capacities and the habits and so on. That means if bad things happen in the future or when bad things happen in the future, we'll be equipped to deal with them in some sort of a way. That's Precisely. the best preparation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if you are equipped to deal with the future, like getting locked up, then you can be uh, able to deal with the future of the, of the next life, even if it's when God sends you right to hell. <laughs> I can handle that, too. That's contrasted with the strategy of doing things to add up into your karmic bank account so that maybe things will be a little better in the future. You can offset maybe some of the bad things that might happen to you because you do a lot of good things now and somehow through some system outside of cause and effect um, or, or through some magical cause of effect, through some magical means. But there's a new way of doing it, and that is stop looking at things as good and bad and wanting this to be different than that and praying to God for a prayer that's not part of his plan and begin to enjoy the plan that's playing out, the one that's unfolding. This is the good one. Let this one be okay. Let's get out of our critical mind and wanting things to be better. And that's how we're handling this present moment is because this, pro this present moment is marvelous. This is my fate. This is your present moment and it is your fate. Why can't you fall in love and accept this present moment? It's wonderful. It's grand. Everything is marvelous right here, right now. If we remember to see it that way, if we remember to have that attitude, and so we need to develop that attitude. We need to remember that, oh, I don't have to have the negative thoughts about maybe someday if I make enough merit and build enough a bank account and that kind of stuff you were talking about, then I can be okay. Then I can be happy. Why don't you be happy and okay right now? Because that's the teaching of the Buddha. The building up for the future is magical thinking and it is religious with the idea that things are not good enough now and we hope that some daddy or some savior or something is going to be better in the future. Maybe if I store up enough merit, I'll have a better future. And the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of Buddha is all about, hey man, cool out, chill out, 
You don't need a future. Your present's good enough. That's the method that you're describing. So, and let me ask you about, uh, in a moment, I want to ask you about the Dalai Lama because we talked before we were uh -huh. recording and you said you had some thoughts there and I have a question about him. But in the meantime, so another uh, word that one finds in Buddhism, which I think is can mean lots of different things depending on who's using it and how, is upaya, or skillful means, or the ends justify the means. Sometimes it's taken to, it's used. Uh, now I'm being, you know, this is not necessarily can canonical what I'm saying. But returning to my previous question about useful ignorance, on a group or society level, convincing people that behaving well and, and by whatever metric you lay out as a leader will benefit them in the future through some magical means, the polluted version of merit, as you say, it could be that that's quicker or more efficacious on the whole to producing a coherent society. If everybody is suddenly... We built our society upon magical thinking. That's why we have such a marvelous society and still everybody's unhappy. <laughs> is there justification made for magical thinking, propagating magical thinking by those who know better? I don't have to justify it. We just have to recognize that it does have value. It is useful, but it's magical. not liberating. Uh, okay, say more about that. That's interesting. Yes. Without magical thinking, we couldn't raise our kids. We got to lie to them. We told them the truth every time they wouldn't bother to go to school because we'd tell them how much we hate it instead of telling them how good it is for them. And we know that's a lie. <laughs> Children wouldn't go to school. The whole thing, the whole society would just presumably. The whole society would fall apart if everybody spoke the truth 100% of the time. The whole society is built upon a pack of lies. Sorry about that, but this is what the Buddha teaches Sila Bhatta Paramasa is attachment to rites, rules, and rituals, ways that things should be done. So the question is, are you going to be one of the sheeple, one of the herd that goes along with all of these rules, carrying the herd this way and that way, or are you going to escape from that herd? Are you going to become noble? You're going to see the way things really are and stop going along with society. So in that regard, a good Buddhist teacher is never going to invite people to go vote. Why should a meditation teacher ever tell any students to go vote? That's like saying to go, <laughs> go have a mud bath. Go care about some politician somewhere. Go want something from society to change. Never mind your own mind is all messed up with all these wants and desires about this and that politician. So you see, that's what I'm getting at. A good meditation teacher is going to say, get out of politics, especially get out of it out of your head. It's not wholesome. It doesn't lead you to happy, happiness and joy. Politicians get you to do stuff by promising things that they never give you and or scare you to death, <laughs> depending upon where you're a Democrat or Republican. And so renunciation, it seems, in this method is the inevitable outcome of... That's uh, an interesting way of putting it. Absolutely. Morality is taught to students or to children to build society and to keep them in, in uh, check and whatnot like that. But the noble, 
once you see the truth and come out of it, what that basically means is by practicing the Eightfold Noble Path and having right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude, those three, those four things come together to make a right noble mind that is unified and strong and whole. This is what they mean by the unify, unification of the mind that is often translated wrongly because it uses the word samati for, uh, for unification, is they call it a concentrated mind. The mind's not concentrated, but it is unified. Why? Because it's unified in a way that it doesn't have any room for lies. We don't separate ourselves from the truth and this is me that's true and this is me that's the lie. No, we bring everything together as a unity. The same thing with doubt. Doubt is, is it this, is, is it that? If I'm completely free from doubt, then I'm unified. Another way of talking about it then is, is that now we're talking about we don't have any conflicts of interest because we don't hold those kinds of interest anymore. But the kind of interests that we have are always unified interests, not conflicting interest. And so no conflicting interest, when the mind is unified like that, when the mind is noble, when the mind doesn't want anything, then the mind is very unlikely to go out and commit mayhem or to steal or to rob or to harm or to kill. And this is actually in the sutta. I'm actually quoting sutta number 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya now about this, that is with a noble mind that one refrains from uh, wrong speech, wrong behavior, uh, wrong action, and wrong livelihood out of wisdom because we can see the dukkha in it. When we're kids, it's a, it's a rule that's got punishments and, and uh, ups and downs, rights and wrongs, and, and um, uh, critical ways of looking at it. But here now we're looking at it as nurturing in the sense of let's stay out of the unwholesome and stay in the wholesome. So again, this is the wholesome is in fact refraining from all of these things that we do so naturally because we got no reason to go dabble in that stuff. We can see that it's poison, it's dangerous, it's harmful. Don't do it. <laughs> this is then, I think, where the Mahayana criticism of the Arhat or of the of this way, this method, I suppose, can come in, at least as it's commonly cast, it says, well, if this was propagated, it would be a self-terminating, it would self-terminating in terms of the society. And uh, the criticism that's given, as they would say for the Hinayana, as they call it, uh, would be, well, okay, you're enlightened and liberated, but everything's going to hell in a handbasket now. There's... Only because the Mahayanas keeps telling us it's going to hell. If you take a close look, maybe it's not. <laughs> well, you said yourself that this society would collapse if everybody took this on, let's say, or it was taken on in, in, in large the enough numbers. The best example I know of it that actually happened was Angor. The story of Angor, so I've heard, and I've been there and talked to the Burmese, and I mean, uh, uh, the, the Khmer, uh, lived with with one, um, and basically the story is is that the Brahmins who were part of the king uh, and the royal system and all of that um, knew exactly when how the river would back up. You see the Mekong River when uh, the ice comes uh, melting down and flowing down the uh, the the delta in Vietnam. 
would would fill up. It would swell. And so the river would back up and it would back up into the tributaries. And this tributary that we're talking about that goes all the way up to Angkor, the river would back up and then it would flood into this plain and create a, uh, a lake. And then the lake would dry up and now they got a wonderful place to plant rice. And so the Brahmins began to have the ceremony because they knew exactly when the river was going to back up every year. And they had runners going down and all of that kind of stuff. When the Buddhists came by, they tried to figure it out because fires don't, I mean, rivers just don't back up without a cause. But the Brahmins were saying, yes, it does. And we know when it happens and we're going to do umi dumi gami gabi bra ra blam 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 on our uh, head. And then the rivers back up and everybody says umi dumi gabi gabi, you see. And the Buddhists came in and they pointed that out and the whole civilization fell apart. Basically, it took about 50 years. <laughs> So that's an interesting thing that actually happened. So it seems that really people can follow this path only if they're a minority, that yes. the, they, need, they need to depend on other people, other people's, I suppose, ignorance. Who are very willing to remain ignorant, right? We have to appreciate that there's going to be a whole lot of people who are going to stay ignorant out there. And each one of them has a choice and each one of them is invited to come out of their misery and suffering but only if you will. And one sort of banking on them not doing it, otherwise. I'm not banking on them doing it because I can see them doing it. I mean, it's just pure experience from how many thousands of years, but of all the people that I've seen in my life, the number of nobles I've met is a very, very small handful. <laughs> yeah, so I guess you don't have to worry about it, but. I don't have um, to worry about that mm -hmm. one. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's it has to be a minority view, otherwise, the uh, mendicants wouldn't eat, or you, because the the renunciates depend on those that are not that have not renounced for their only the guys who don't get up at seven o'clock in the morning and feed the monks would say that. Those people who do get up in the morning and feed the monks will say, "Of course, the monks are going to get fed. Here I am." matter of attitude can you explain that a bit i don't think i quite caught it you're pointing out something in what i'm saying which uh, yes, you're re I, you're reframing that maybe you could reframing be, it yeah. yes you said that um that people would stop feeding the monks if blah blah happened what i meant was that without anybody doing without magical thinking no, there, no one would make food and then there would be no food for anybody including the monks because at that point everyone would be a renunciate that's the point i'm trying to make oh in that case let's say if everybody stopped uh with any magical thinking in the sense of good deeds good get eventually good behavior and bad deeds always give bad behavior at the state that they are, they would all run wild, kill each other, and we'd lose our civilization flat out. We'd have nuclear warfare. There'd be, you know, people would raid the capital. Wait a minute, they just did that. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Things would go downhill in a hurry, and it has. Okay. Now, there, there's the other side of the coin, the one that you didn't ask, and that is, well, what if everybody became a bhikkhu? Everybody became a bhikkhu or everybody became a nun. What if they didn't have any more babies? And the answer is, well, yeah, but 
the likelihood of that happening is so remote. Wouldn't it be marvelous for at least one generation, you know, to find a shout? Maybe that's what should happen uh, as we recognize that, hey, the sun's just about to blow up. We got about five years before the sun blows up. Let's all become Buddhist monks, all become free and go out in a nice blaze of glory. (laughs) As opposed to what are we going to do in our last five years? Kill each other and starve to death and havoc and mayhem and I mean, look at what a cornered animal do. If you want to see how cornered animals behave, look at the Republican Party right now. In the United States, because it's acting like uh, like a cornered animal. And it is not up to its most noble aspirations. It goes down. Things cycle downward. Okay, so the likelihood of everybody become a Buddhist monk or everybody... Uh, uh, becoming nobly minded, not likely to happen. And if it did, it would be marvelous. But I'm not counting on one way or the other. I'm counting on that I can at least make it through this moment. Yeah, I made it. Look. <laughs> <laughs> Let's okay. try it again. <laughs> okay, I'll take I'll take one last stab at it. So, if everybody <laughs> gives up magical thinking and follows this method then they would, renunciation would be a logical outcome. And at the same time, society would collapse. Uh, but at the same time, you're saying well, it would be they're great. not going to happen. Everybody is not going to do it all at the same time. There's something else that we can talk about, and that is that King Asok, at the time of Asok, because he was so into the teachings of the Buddha, he made it the state religion. Big mistake. Because he started building monasteries, he started giving robes out, he started feeding the monks, and guess what? All of the religious folks from all over the place came to become Buddhist monks, which meant that the noble teaching of the, of the monks that was um, cloistered and kept by the noble few were overwhelmed. It's like a university that has 10,000 students, and maybe you've got a faculty of 250, maybe 300 And now all of a sudden you don't have a a university of 10,000. Now you've got a university of 100,000 all at once. And that faculty is going to be completely overwhelmed with everything. And so the students start teaching the students. And that was the major place where magic came into the Sangha was because the, the students were teaching the students from whatever they used to believe instead of uh, hearing the real Dhamma from the elders did happen uh, we can get overwhelmed I think nowadays though we're more ready for it in fact we better be because Buddhism is getting very popular in the west hundreds of thousands of people I mean 20 years ago it was that was very rare (laughs) 40 years ago very rare indeed Mm. and now by the millions people are catching on that's true. Hmm. And so we need to be ready by being able to teach the noble Dhamma rather than them just repeating what they already believed before they came into Buddhism. I believe what they heard about the teaching of the Buddha, because most of it is quite magical. And that magical teaching is actually quite delicious. Oh, you'll live forever. 
If you graduate into being a Mormon, you can get your own planet. <laughs> okay. And live forever. All right. So that's interesting. So, um, okay. So I think there's a tension here that perhaps we'll just leave between the benefit of the method to the individual and the catastrophic implications of the method for society. I don't see any possibility of that catastrophic happening. I don't see any possibility of it happening. And if it did, I wouldn't call it catastrophic. I would call it a marvelous event, whippy. Because of the method, you would you would see it that because way. Because of the mass. I mean, can you imagine all of one time the whole mass of human suffering ended for the humans while they were still alive? Okay. All right. So let's let's. Uh, so we've got two two options now, uh, Damarata. I can ask you about the Dalai Lama, or we can okay. do that another time. How, how are you doing in terms of brain power and energy and so on? I'm okay. I'm worried more about our audience, wearing them down. Well, they can pause. They can pause. Okay. But I think this we probably uh, this will be perhaps my last line of questioning. How am I going to phrase this question? Because you've already answered the reason I would bring up the Dalai Lama, which is reincarnation. And bring up the Dalai Lama, and we'll work it in. Yeah. Okay. What about him? I know him personally. I've met him. Yes. Very interesting. So, what you know? What about the Dalai Lama? You said you had some interesting reflections on the Dalai Lama. I initially had thought of him in the context of our discussion because, of course, he claims to be the fourteenth in a reincarnated line of Dalai Lamas. Uh, so, you know, there, th that's a little bit, perhaps there's some, some something magical about that in terms of the thinking, perhaps not. Uh, that's how he'd initially come to my mind in the context of this discussion. And you said you had some reflections on the Dalai Lama. I'd be very curious about those. Okay. Let's start with that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and uh, the Dalai Lama were, were friends and that they agreed on almost everything. Another point that I want to make to get stuff started is, is that the Dalai Lama has since the Panchen Lama been in the direction of, and several years ago, he finally made the statement that he's not going to be reborn. Okay, what does that mean? It means that was a political statement because of the Chinese government, right? However, it also point, it may be pointing out that this whole sham that we have been playing for all of these 14 times, um, the jig is up. The Chinese government has called us on it, and it's time to put this one to bed. Okay, so now let's look at what's really possibly going on there. Imagine that a bunch of monks go tooling up into the Himalayas looking for a kid that, that they want so that they can tra uh, train him up being around monks and give him a really first-class education. If they walk up to the door of this lady and says, hey lady, can we have your kid? We're going to take him down there to the temple and we're going to teach him all about the good stuff. And we want a young one that's early enough so that we can teach him good because we don't trust the way you've been teaching him. You're making an idiot out of him. We want to make a Dalai Lama out of him, okay? Is she going to give him that kid? Not a chance. Oh, no, not a chance if they tell her the truth. 
So what they go up there with is a bag of goodies and give them all to the child to play with. And the one he picks up and plays with, oh, he used to play with that in the last life. Oh, lady, we've got a Dalai Lama here. Your child is so special. Oh, you, you would be the savior of the world, lady, if you'd give us your kid. And they'll get a kid that way. Mm-hmm. So that's the scam is to talk about all of this. And so basically when they need a new Dalai Lama, they go down and get a kid and then they train him up in all of the good ways that they trained the Dalai Lama. Another one that they tried that with was um, Krishnamurti. Okay. And Krishnamurti rebelled against it in a way, but he rebelled more against Ledbetter than he did against all of the teachings because he wound up still being a marvelous Dhamma teacher anyway. Okay. So I would have liked to have had that myself rather than my daddy and my mommy that I had to deal with the way everybody else does. It would have been nice if I'd had 50 uh, Arahats giving me the education that I needed. Okay. So this is the way that I look at the Dalai Lama is, is that he has a first class education and he wears it well. He is noble-minded and he understands the Dhamma. And I've heard a lot of his talks. And I also know that he can talk the way that the Buddha did on both sides of his mouth. In other words, when you have people who come and give you questions that require uh, answers in rebirth, he will give them answers in rebirth. If they come and ask him real logical questions, he'll answer those too. And that's very, very typical of the way that it's done. It's even done that way in the suttas, that that's how the Buddha got original uh, people to come is because they believed in all of that magical stuff. And so they needed to know that he knew what they believed in. That's why he was such an expert, or let us say, that's why he proved that he was an expert. He actually was skilled in that, schooled in it by a very good teacher when he was a child. So he was well-educated in the Rig Vedas and all of that kind of stuff. And he knew what he was talking about. And because of that, these people would gain confidence in him. And then they would go off like Sati and he'd beat the tar out of them. <laughs> when they kept their magical beliefs. Oh no, it's time to give those magical beliefs up if you're actually going to make real progress. And so uh, everybody starts out in magical beliefs. Every little child, play, the, the girls play with the little doll as if the little doll is a real baby or a real person and the little boy plays with the real truck, zoom, 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 pretending that that truck is a real truck. We start off in magical thinking. That's what play is. That's the human existence. And so we start off in magical thinking. And when our parents reinforce all that magical thinking, we wind up thinking magically our whole lives, sometimes to our great disaster, because that little truck is not a real truck. It's not real. It's a toy. But when we know what a toy is and what a toy is not, we can play with toys and have a marvelous life and leave the dangerous snakes alone, leave the dangerous things alone. So this is the whole way then of, uh, of the practice of the Buddha is to be here now to do what we're doing now and not worry about the far off distant future.
So one of the things, a point that I wanted to make is, is that if you are prepared for this moment, then you can be prepared for the next moment and the next one and the next one. Every moment is just another new present moment. If we can get ready for this next moment and you've got all the tools and all the skills you need to deal with this present moment, then it doesn't matter how many new present moments you get or not. Every one of them, you're going to be ready for it. And there may come a time when you don't get any more of them and that's going to be okay because you're ready to handle that moment too. But most people are very much afraid of death. They don't want to die. They want more and more and more and more and more life. Longer. Which means they're not enjoying the life that they do have. So this is the danger of reincarnation. It prevents us. So in the beginning, a student, uh, let us say in Thailand, most of the Thai people don't meditate. They go out and make merit. That's proof positive that that mentality keeps people from actually getting anywhere because they don't get anywhere. They still believe in magic and believe that they'll get somewhere in the next life. That this life, we can't get anywhere. Okay, so already from the mass numbers, people are not going to practice properly. They're not going to understand things correctly. They're not going to then become noble-minded. So I'm, I'm, it, there, we are in no danger of all of the people in Thailand who are Buddhist to all of a sudden go to the Wat. It's not going to happen. There's too much greed and corruption and, and um, bad feelings and all of that kind of stuff. So they're not going to do it. But if we do do it, that means that now we will start to meditate. We can, in fact, practice correctly and we can come out of our suffering and then we can meet the world happily. But there's another side of that that you probably haven't thought about. And that is, is that if you have a benign dictator, the people, uh, the, uh, the citizenry of that country are probably not going to be very political because everything's already hunky-dory. Everything is good and you've got a benign dictator who's taking care of everything and the people are well-fed and uh, the uh, criminals get put in jail and the generals get promoted and everything goes along the story, there's no problem. Democracies, now there you've got to fight. And so your, your whole nation is going to be unhappy and angry at the other side and going boiling going up and boiling going down for generation after generation of um, animosity over who's going to be in charge of the place. But if you've got a, a benign royal family, they could go generation after generation after generation treating the people well and being good monarchs. The people don't care about politics at all. Maybe we can have that kind of society to where we finally wind up with good leadership so that nobody cares about politics. That we get the internet so straightened out that people can work from home and then they don't care about travel. And now we clean up our atmosphere. I mean, it's possible to go in step-by-step -step in little directions towards that, that goal by the waking up. 
But in fact, one of the possibilities is going to be there for us is to get the uh, Christians and other religious people out of politics. To let them wake up and go off into their little enclaves and to stop stirring the pot wanting power. And so why should we want to invite the Buddhists? Go vote. Go get some Buddhist power. You go stir the pot. <laughs> no, we need a whole lot less pot stirring. We need a whole lot more people to walk away from the fight. The more, the better. The more people who can walk away from the fight, but it's still not going to be an overwhelming number. You're not going to, because like you, you're thinking about it off and on, that nobody, and then all of a sudden, everybody. No, we just want a, a few and a few more and a few more than that, and just a few more, every generation, just a few more. All we need is just, you know, 30 or 40 million. <laughs> that would be good if we had 30 or 40 million nobles. What would be good about that? What would be good about it? You'd have a whole lot of laid back people. That's for one thing. The whole world would become more laid back. Nobody cares much about anything anymore. All of those nobles would not, would maybe have children, but their children are certainly not going to join the army. <laughs> the arms race of got to stay in the fight because if we're not in the fight, then the bad actors will be the only ones remaining in the fight. And then things will be bad. That's the, I think, that's the concern, isn't it? That keeps... Yeah, and the keep... right way to think of that is, yes, the bad actors will be there to fight each other. Let them fight. And the fewer of them in that fight, the better. But let them fight if they want to fight. We can't stop them from fighting. That's the problem is to go in and try to break up the fight. The only way to break up a fight is by going in and getting into the fight. That's the only way to do it, right? Let's not join the fight. Let's learn how to stay out of all of these brawls. And the more people who stay out of the brawls, the fewer brawls there'll be. Would it be fair to say that sometimes in one's enclave, the fight comes to you? My ancestors rocked up, <laughs> I think, at the uh, at certain monasteries, and there was much sacking and <laughs> so on going on. The noble ones in that position, without the means to defend themselves, perhaps could be taken advantage of by those who are armed. Is that possible? Ah, but are they taking advantage of, or are they just dying happily? So you're you're that radical with it you're serious about this method applied right now no matter what's going on yeah yeah i can handle this i can handle getting slaughtered i've tried it several times <laughs> you mean you've faced death several times oh yeah yeah i've got the scars to prove it you know the movie jaws where mm. right before the boat is eaten by the big shark at night they're they're um uh showing each other scars and who's got the biggest scar I can do I can enter that contest. <laughs> this is after your ordination. You face death. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, I've been a pretty wild motorcycle uh, 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 excitement junkie. 
So yeah, I, I, I've been all stoved up. I've been in surgery. I've had <laughs> legs decided, are they going to cut that one off or what? Gosh. So in any case, yeah, I'm serious about it because I know that remaining a nobly minded is more important than staying alive. Hmm. I can die nobly. Hmm. And if I can die nobly, then that means that I can, what, what else, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? What is literally the worst thing that can happen to you? And then you say, okay, can I handle that? with grace, with ease, with joy, with acceptance. And if I can handle the worst thing that can happen, then I can handle a little stuff easy. I think that's what gives monks that strength, that strength of knowing. And there are many things that the monks do that bring about that kind of knowledge. One is going out bend about barefoot to learn that I can handle this. So there's a lot of things, and, and monks are also notorious for refusing medical attention. Why do they refuse medical attention? Because they're tough dudes. Achan Po, in fact, ran around for a number of years, and everybody who could see him could see that his cataracts were deteriorating to the point that he would blind. He had to look at it out of the corner of his eye. They finally had to trick him into the surgery. Once they got him into the doctor's office, he accepted the, the okay, <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> but other than that, he avoided it pretty well. So that's the kind of attitude. Oh, yeah, I can go blind. I can handle going blind. There was a time when I was completely blind. I didn't see anything. That, oh, wait a minute. That happens every night. Every time I close my eyes, I'm blind. I can't see. <laughs> so I know what that's all about. <laughs> that's the toughness. That's the strength. And that strength comes from right attitude. And that right attitude is a skill to be developed. With the understanding, aha, I see you, Mara, and I can throw you out of the mind, and I can come back, and I can be happy in this present moment. This is the teaching of Anapanasati, the teaching of the Buddha, the Eightfold Noble Path, and it makes people strong like lions. Actually, it's not a lion, or it's not a people anymore, it's a lion. <laughs> Way we go rather than going down to oh maybe next time if i give enough merit if i donate enough to this or that then i'll have a, a chance at it next time when you can have a chance at it right now yeah. i think we've come full circle in this conversation so this seems like a good place to finish i really and, appreciate uh, you doing this i really like it this is so much fun Thank you so much, Damarato. And looking forward to your conversation with Daniel Ingram. Uh, which, yeah, which we're going to host here on the podcast. It's scheduled. Uh, Daniel and Damarato will be having a conversation about magic in the Dharma. And uh, that'll be very fascinating indeed. Uh, Damarato, yeah. thank you so much for your time. I am so pleased. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.